Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. And I'm Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor here at ETF.com. This week, we're talking with David Dolly, Head of Portfolio Strategy at Matthews Asia. David, welcome to the show. Oh, well, it's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. So, David, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about Matthews Asia. What do you guys do over there and what does your ETF footprint look like? Oh, well, thanks for the question. It's a great question. Um, give you some background on Matthews. Matthews is an Asia and globally emerging market specialist. Uh, we're based in San Francisco, but we have offices in Hong Kong and in London. You know, investors typically hire us because for over 30 years or so, uh, we've been managing active, high conviction portfolios, and 90% of which have beaten their respective benchmarks since inception. Uh, to give you a sense of our product suite, uh, in the US, we have 18 distinct strategies. Uh, some of our regional strategies focus on Asia and others on global emerging markets. Uh, we have several single country funds, including four varieties of China. Plus, we have India, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, we manage all-cap strategies and others which focus on smaller, undiscovered companies. And while most of our strategies are meant to provide core exposure, we have several growth-oriented funds as well as others meant to generate total return and income. And I guess lastly, I would say we're very proud to say uh, that we've launched 12 actively managed ETFs in the past 18 months. Sounds like a, a lot going on there under your your kind of leadership and direction there. David, you, you came to Matthews in 2015 from BlackRock. How have you seen the ETF space evolve in that time? Well, you know, I wasn't at BlackRock long, but I can tell you that the ETF space has been uh, extremely attractive to, to clients of all types, whether you're a wirehouse broker dealer advisor, whether you're a, a very sophisticated RIA, uh, whether you are a family office or sophisticated institution, it seems like ETFs are being adopted just not just in the United States, but but globally. I think the biggest change, at least for me in the last 18 to 24 months, has been the adoption of active ETFs as opposed to passive. Um, now, clearly, and I can tell you a little bit about why Matthews entered the ETF space, but you know, for us as active managers, clearly our clients uh, are demanding that active ETF, not just the passive. So I think that's the biggest change for us. And maybe I'll just jump in just real quick and give you an idea of why we entered the ETF, ETF space to begin with. Um, you know, we debated it for uh, for quite some time. Uh, mm -hmm. ulti ultimately, we wanted to meet clients where they were. Uh, in other words, it was pretty clear that all segments of our client base, like I just mentioned, uh, were deeming ETFs to be at least another vehicle of choice. So we decided to give our investors a choice. Uh, we knew that we needed to continue to offer our strategies in mutual fund form as well as separate accounts, but we felt that offering our existing strategies in an ETF wrapper would just make it easier for our clients to allocate to our suite of strategies going forward. And you know, we did decide very specifically that we would remain to be an active manager and that our initial suite of ETF offerings would be actively managed. And for the for the most part, we decided to offer first substantially similar strategies as our mutual fund holdings. Um, and I have to say that after 18 months, 
We're extremely happy that we offered the initial 12 ETFs. We've been given a lot of positive feedback and clients were basically asking, you know, what took you so long? That's great. So, David, I want to ask you a little bit about the markets. Obviously, the Asian markets, they've been all over the place this year. Japanese stocks, they're nearing multi-decade highs. Chinese stocks, though, are headed the completely opposite direction. Could you walk us through the Asian markets? What should investors be paying attention to right now? Well, well, you've you hit it on the head. You know, Asia is a very, I would say, diverse place. Um, like you mentioned, there are developed markets like Hong Kong and Japan. There are advanced economies like Korea and Taiwan. There are fastly emerging economies like China. And there are those up and comers like India, Indonesia, and Vietnam. Um, what I would say is that there, these markets are all very different with different regulatory environments, um, different um, abilities for investors to access those markets. Some of these markets are very tightly held and very closed and others are fairly open. So what I would say, um, and what I would hope that all investors should be, be made aware of is that although these markets are you know, potentially fantastic performers in terms of total return, I would say the biggest thing I would say is you need to stay active. Um, and we all know that investors need to decide where to spend their active budget. Um, and many passive ETF providers would argue that in developed markets like the US and Europe, active managers don't consistently beat their benchmarks, um, at least not to the magnitude to justify higher fees. However, we're an emerging market specialist. And I think most of our clients would agree that if there's any place worthy of hiring an active manager, it's within our asset class. And I think they're right. Let me give you a few reasons why I think active management is important, at least uh, for most investors. And it's really around the fact that most of the benchmarks in our region, that's Asian global emerging markets, those benchmarks have really serious shortcomings. I mean, for example, EM benchmarks are blind to corporate governance. I mean, can you imagine? You know, it's so important that that governance, um, you know, it, that investors pay attention to governance, especially in our markets um, and, and, and broad emerging markets. They're also blind to regulation and geopolitics. And you would argue that regulation in China, geopolitics around US-China have potentially been the largest drivers of returns in the last several years. Um, in addition, you know, EM benchmarks are core exposures. Most of our investors go into EM and go into Asia in hopes of higher return and hopes to find growth. But these are core benchmarks. They're not growth benchmarks. And if you want growth, you have to intentionally go find them, you know, actively. I would say, you know, lastly, some of the biggest shortcomings of these benchmarks is that they exclude a huge opportunity set within the asset class. I mean, for example, EM small caps are barely represented at all within core benchmarks. Yet small caps tend to represent over 80% of the opportunity set. And a lot, uh, a lot, and they tend to be a lot more growthy. Um, you know, additionally, I think the benchmark, you know, doesn't have the ability to overweight things like India or Vietnam or the next generation of winners. So, anyways, bottom line is that I think the biggest, I would say, thing for investors to remember about investing in our asset class is to stay active because these benchmarks are definitely beatable. They have all kinds of shortcomings that active managers like us can take advantage of. That's really interesting. And, you know, I want to kind of stick with uh, China, David, because this is top of mind for anyone investing 
in emerging markets generally and Asia specifically. And, you know, there's been a lot of concerns about the geopolitical risks in China because obviously that economy is facing economic challenges, but it seems like valuations for Chinese stocks just keep getting more and more compressed because people are afraid, um, you know, there might be a war, you know, with China because of Taiwan and things like that. Are you getting questions about that from investors? Oh my gosh. You know, we, you know, China is about a third of our business and 95% of the questions we get from investors. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's top of mind for everybody. And it's not just because it's been a fairly poor performer over the last three years, but it's, it's got much bigger ramifications, even for, for the U.S. economy. And what I would tell you is that, you know, both equity and, and bond markets show that investor sentiment has deteriorated significantly in the last you know 24 months especially and the biggest concern has been their housing market and for good reason i mean you know home sales in china are down about 40 percent one year over next one year over last and loan growth seems to be lackluster um and sentiment is is poor because of geopolitics lack of economic growth etc but all that said and even with poor sentiment uncertain geopolitics and this overhang of maybe a potential Trump presidency again, you know, I believe that China could actually be one of 2024's best, best performing major markets. And that's a pretty big thing to say as a strategist, because like you said, the world seems to be against my view on that. But I believe, let me, let me just talk about a few catalysts that I think investors should pay, pay attention to. Um, you know, first, just last week, you know, the Chinese government seemed to draw a line in the sand. You know, they they hinted that they were willing to put um, about 280 billion U.S. dollars into the Chinese equity market through Hong Kong, and maybe another 80 to 90 billion potentially going directly to onshore vehicles. And what that means to us is that they noticed that, like you said, valuations have come down substantially. Um, it's been an extremely violent move and they want to put a floor and at least establish some stability. You know, secondly, you know, we expect more stimulus to come from this government. I mean, they've basically put out and we expect them to put out officially in March a four and a half to five percent growth target for next year. That's pretty hard to get to given the, the high base of last year. So they're going to have to stimulate. And, and third, I, we would expect more policy on property. Um, and let me tell you two things that I think have really opened my eyes to why I think China has a shot to stabilize and improve. Fourth, you know, we've seen from our clients, I think I've seen probably 20 to 30 large CIO, CIOs from clients of ours in the last several months. And I asked them, you know, would you be interested in one of our new products, EMX China? And you'd be shocked, but and I was shocked, but they most of them said, no, we're not interested. And they said no, because they thought being zero China or actively significantly underweight China is too big of an active risk at this particular stage of valuation. So I thought that was interesting, but let me give you my last reason. And probably the most important reason why I think China's got a shot, even with all the reasons that you mentioned, which are important, but it's really the reversal of this equity return equation that China's had. China's been down literally 14% per annum for the last three years straight, 14% per annum on average. Now, when you break that apart, about 
A third of that is negative earnings growth in U.S. dollar terms, but two-thirds of that has been that multiple contraction, that poor sentiment that you alluded to. So why do I think this has a shot to reverse? Because in my mind, this earnings equation, this, re this return equation is pretty easy to reverse. If, if Even if we assume no improvement whatsoever in sentiment, let's say that multiples stay where they are, then it becomes an earnings equation. And if I look at earnings today, the consensus earnings for China for 2024, up about 17, 18%. So even if you water that down and say that consensus earnings are overbaked and you get to eight to 10% earnings growth plus 2% dividends plus zero improvement in sentiment, you're still getting to that 10 to 12% return on Chinese equities, which is a huge change from the last three years of minus 14%. So I know that was a long-winded answer about why China, but like you said, it's on everybody's mind. And it's it's really the foundation of, of emerging market returns, um, You know, hopefully going forward. Hey, David, I want to ask you a little bit about the US investor. But first, I want to go back to something you referenced. And I, I, it seemed like you glossed over it kind of quickly. You said a, a Trump presidency. Is that, are you suggesting that's a that's a going to be good for Chinese markets or bad for Chinese markets? It sounds like you're saying there is going to be some kind of an impact, right? Well, you would think so. I mean, Trump certainly introduced fairly stiff tariffs against uh, China, against Chinese mm -hmm. imports into the U.S. And all the rhetoric so far when he's been on the road has suggested even more draconian tariffs on, on Chinese imports, which we know don't hurt China as much as they hurt the U.S. consumer. But so I do think if there is a Trump Trump presidency, that there's no doubt that he would probably, you know, turn up the, the pressure on, on Chinese imports. You would think he would try to, to be true to his campaign. Uh -huh. And that probably would have a negative effect. So when you when you think about you know what types of sectors could outperform in China, maybe the, the more the domestic sectors, the domestic consumer sectors that are not focused on exports, that are not reliant on 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 foreign trade, et cetera, that could to could outshine, you know, other areas within the Chinese market. Okay. Well, no matter who the next president is, it's uh, we're still a, a year from that actually changing hands. But um for for now let's let's talk a little bit about the US investor. We know that uh, US investors and financial advisors typically favor the U.S. markets in their portfolios. Is that a problem? And, and if so, how can firms like yours address it? You know, it's a good question. And listen, I'm a U.S. investor, right? 75% of my own personal money is, is, is in the U.S. and probably will always remain to be in the U.S. Um, but for that 20 to 25% that goes outside the United States, I think investors have a choice to make. And it's an important choice. So historically, I would say investors take that 20 to 25% outside the United States and then they allocate typically to developed international markets, things like IFA, and which is primarily Western Europe. And maybe a third, so two thirds maybe to IFA developed markets, maybe a third to global emerging markets. And I guess I would argue at this stage of the game, if I were you know, reevaluating and rethinking my asset allocation for the next three to five years, I would probably flip that equation 
So keep my investments in the United States, understanding that mm -hmm. the U.S. might be slightly expensive, um, emerging markets being slightly cheap. But what I would do is instead of two-thirds developed international, one-third EM, I'd probably flip that. And the reason is when I look at forward-looking earnings you know, for the next 18 to 24 months, developed Europe is certainly lagging almost every metric that you can imagine from analysts. So therefore, we don't see the earnings growth in Western Europe, yet we're, we're seeing them in the emerging markets for the first time in, in many, many years. And I would say, I mean, look at Powell's statement today you know, the, the U.S., you know, Fed is on hold. But what he did say is that our policy rate is likely at its peak uh, for this stage in the cycle. And that's mm -hmm. an important statement to make, because if it's true that our policy rates are at a peak, emerging markets tend to do fairly well when U.S. rates are falling. And typically what happens is the U.S. dollar ceases to become a headwind uh, for emerging markets. Um, U.S. dollar earnings tend to outperform in EM uh, in this type of scenario. Uh, EM growth differentials, in other words, EM countries tend to grow faster than developed market countries uh, in this type of scenario. And it, it typically underpins a lot of good things. So what I would say is if I were sitting in an allocator seat today for my international exposure, mm -hmm. I would probably tilt towards EM for the first time in a long time versus developed international. Okay. And, and for our audience, uh, David's reference to Fed Chair Jerome Powell's statements today, this is being recorded on January 31st. Oh, sorry uh, about that. No, that, don't be sorry. <laughs> I'm just giving everybody context here. That's, you know, but those were, that's a legitimate point you made there. Uh, what, what are you seeing in terms of opportunities to launch new products and strategies at Matthews? Um, listen, that's a great question. And we're always trying to evaluate our product suite. Um, and it's tough to guess what we'll launch next, but I can tell you that all of our typical, all of our new products typically have a few things in common. First, you know, they tend to be client-led. In other words, the new products we launched need to provide a solution for clients. The new products need to play a role within clients' asset allocation. You know, secondly, our new products uh, need to be a good business fit for Matthews. You know, the product needs to be a core competency of Matthews. And the product needs to be differentiated within our current product suite. You know, lastly, you know, any product that we contemplate launching obviously needs to be commercially viable. You know, our clients want liquid, transparent, widely adopted vehicles. The products need to provide some solution to the marketplace and need to be differentiated in the marketplace. And the products need to have capacity um, and they need to be within a category that we expect to grow. So, you know, with all that in mind, I would expect our future ETFs to be building blocks, you know, for investors within Asia and emerging markets. For example, products that allow investors to gain access to very specific exposures to assist with completing asset allocation needs within our area of, of expertise. I think a good example of that would be our recent launch with uh, EMX China. Mm -hmm. um, you know, EMX China, it's one, it, I don't know if you're going to ask me what, you know, what are my, some of our favorite products, but it's-, well, can, it's you, an, can you give us the ticker symbol to that one you just referenced? Uh, yeah, EMX China is M-E-M-X. And we recently launched it and I like it, not because I don't like China. I just alluded to the reasons why I do like China, but the reason why I like it is because it gives- investors, you know, a choice 
Um, you know, it, it allows investors to use building blocks. I mean, you know, clients have much more control than emerging market allocation. Uh, most of our clients invest in ex China for two reasons. Number one is they want China to be managed by a specialist. They want it to be managed separately. They understand that China has become extraordinarily complicated. So they want, whether it's us or somebody else to manage it. And for us, they could use our new China ETF, which is MCH. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second reason they might want to use an EMX China proxy is they don't want China in the portfolio. They want it to be underweight. Either way, launching products that give investors a choice and give them building blocks are something that we really do uh, appreciate. And it's something that we find very useful to clients. Okay. Let's uh, let's kind of wrap it up here with mutual funds versus ETFs. You guys started as a mutual fund shop, like a lot of asset managers do. Um, you're migrating. You've migrated into ETFs. It seems to be a big focus of yours now. Obviously, you can see where the assets are flowing across the the asset management industry. A couple couple questions here to throw at you, and, and you can answer them in any order you want. Have you guys converted or thought about converted any converting any mutual funds to ETFs? And have you seen any cannibalization from your mutual funds now that you're in the ETF business? Yeah, that's both great questions. And to answer your first one for conversions, yes, we've actually converted one. Uh, we converted our Korea mutual fund, which was really longstanding. And we actually converted it into an ETF. Uh, and one of the reasons we did that is because we weren't getting a lot of client demand from the mutual fund vehicle. And we saw that in, an increasing number of institutional clients were using passive Korean ETFs as part of their asset allocation. So we thought, well, geez, you know, if we can beat, you know, the passive ETF uh, through active management, uh, wouldn't investors at least be open to, to the active vehicle? So we certainly launched um, the Korea ETF recently, um, it's MCOR, M-K-O-R, uh, and we, we did it for a very good reason. We thought it was just more viable for, for most of our investors, and we, we wanted to give it a shot and see how difficult it was. It turned out to be a much more difficult conversion than we thought. Mm -hmm. um, it, believe it or not, you know, you realize that some mutual fund investors, in fact, many, may not have brokerage accounts and might not be able to accept a new ETF readily. So we had to, we had to overcome several hurdles, and thank goodness to fantastic service providers that helped us do that. So yes, I mean conversions are 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 certain something we're always considering. We've done one, and and we might do uh, more in the future. But for now, we have we have no plans to. One of the reasons, and I mentioned it earlier, that we we launched ETFs to begin with, and we got into this space, is because we wanted to give investors choice, and we wanted to make it seamless. We understand, and to your point earlier, most of the flows these days are 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 not going to mutual funds. Most are going to. ETFs, whether they're passive or active, and that's inclusive of our space, emerging markets in Asia. So listen, we, 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 we came in with both eyes open and we understood the importance of offering our mutual fund strategies uh, within active ETF wrappers. And so for us, we're trying to make it seamless for ourselves and we're trying to be indifferent as to whether one of our clients prefers the mutual fund, as some do, by the way, they still prefer the mutual fund. 
But if they wanted to gravitate towards the active ETF, they could. And for us, we wanted it to be um, a decision that they make and not something we preferred. So we prefer just to offer both vehicles. But yes, we are starting to see some of our largest strategies, some of those investors gravitate towards the active ETFs for all the reasons you could imagine, mm-hmm. whether it's transparency or, or parcel, uh, partial tax benefits or, or, or frankly, just just easier to transact in. Um, all those reasons are good reasons, and we just want to offer them a choice. Okay, well, we will keep watching Matthews Asia. We thank you, David, for your time. Really good stuff here. But thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fighters episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.